Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined, as I am always, by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, welcome to 2021. You know, I never understood the Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times, but now I understand what they meant by interesting times. Yeah, here's for some boring times. But we also have Natasha Mascarenas here. Natasha, how are you doing and how are your days in Jersey going? They're going good. I mean, now that I'm set to leave and move to the good old Midwest, I'm like eating as many bagels as I can and just walking in the suburbs. I will miss everything dearly. You're going to the uh, culinary capital of the Midwest, which is Cincinnati, where they put cheese (laughs) on ramen, apparently. Oh, my God. It's so good. But we will get into that once I am there, as I'm sure Um, it is inevitable. We're we're not going to let that one lie. (laughs) Look, though, before we jump into the show, obviously, this is not a normal week for a couple of reasons, Uh, some to do with our world of startups and markets, some to do with the overall American political climate. Equity really isn't the place to discuss yesterday's mob violence attacking democracy in the Capitol, but obviously it's on our minds. But as we discussed before the show and decided as a team, the democratic process got back to work, the business world got back to work, and so we are also going to get back to work. We have thoughts about that, but that's for Twitter, not for equity. So welcome back. Crew, I mean, this is the first full show of the year, and we have not really done a group show in a couple of weeks about the latest news. So there's a lot to get through. So we're going to start with funding. We're going to talk about some new funds. There's just a panoply of things to enjoy. And we're going to kick off actually with some GitHub alumni that are trying to save us from the thing we're all suffering from most in the last couple of quarters, which is Zoom fatigue. Natasha, what's going on? So we're seeing a pre-seed company come out of GitHub. Connor Sears and Scott Goldman have teamed up to create yet another solution for Zoom fatigue. I think that's been what's on top of mind for almost any engineer right now in the Valley or in startups. And so their bet is that they're going to create an internal YouTube of sorts, which was an internal GitHub tool that they're now making into a company. The goal with that is we do a video conferencing call Alex isn't on the call because he's recording equity, but he can go back after the meeting, check in, see if he was mentioned, see if he has something to deliver and kind of chime in after. So you search through old meetings, making live meetings into more asynchronous meetings. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But a question about this. So like, let's imagine that Natasha, you run a team and I run a team. We both have 10 people on our teams. Instead of having like eight of the 20 people get into a room, you and I could meet, record it make it available to our teams and they could literally just watch our decision-making process. And then we wouldn't have to have everyone stop work to come to the same meeting. Is that the kind of advantage to this? Yeah. And you know, the interface includes transcriptions. You can tag people. So quite literally you'll get a notification through the rewatch channel to see if you were mentioned. 
the idea obviously is we're all in calendar hell because of remote work. And so this could maybe make you watch the all hands on a slow moment in the workday instead of stopping during breaking news. I'm definitely applying this way too much to journalism, but <laughs> engineers <laughs> and a lot of startup clients for rewatch so far. I think the key piece here, obviously, is going to be the transcription and summarization tools. You know, particularly in large companies, oftentimes these all hands meetings go on for a very, very long time. And since the pandemic hit, there are more and more all hands meetings all around the week as people try to synchronize communications. And so my hope here is that they also are helping people communicate better because I have this theory that like all content should be reduced by one format. So like an hour long all hands meeting should be like a 10 minute phone call. 10 minute phone call should really be a two minute email. A two minute email should be like a tweet. I think the more that we can try to get efficient communications, that to me is the hope with rewatch. It doesn't just become a video library and a YouTube channel, but like it really becomes a repository for the thinking around what the company is doing. I think the question that a lot of people in remote work are trying to answer in a lot of different ways is, can we see consumers who are now tired of Zoom, which is what we're comfortable with, can we see them becoming people who are comfortable with coming back to a meeting once it's already been done? Like, will consumers actually be not lazy people and go back to the designer stand up and give in their two cents? And more importantly, will the designer lead look at those comments once they are made? Possibly. I mean, I, I will say I'm guilty of, I think we record all of our meetings here and I've only been to one and it was just to see if I was fired or not. And I can confirm because I'm on this show that I was not, <laughs> but that was the only totally. reason I went. So you know, maybe the fear of missing out, maybe the FOMO effect, using tagging and trying to get people involved in those communications. It would also be interesting over time if it goes from just like, here's the recording of what happened to an actual edited video, meaning, hey, maybe we should change parts of this based on other feedback from other team members. And again, it becomes kind of this artifact that, that adapts based on the team's feedback. They have raised $2 million in a pre-seed round that included Haystack, Upside Partnership, Gumroad, GitHub, and Zendesk. And on the idea of keeping us all more integrated while we are apart, TeamFlow has raised some money. And Natasha, I was reading your post about this company, and I thought it was dumb as hell. And then by the time <laughs> I finished it, I was actually kind of like, oh, I would actually probably use that as a way to be a bit more interactive with the TC staff because we've long been a remote friendly team at a minimum. Yeah, I think the interesting thing, especially writing Rewatch and TeamFlow back to back is Rewatch is betting employees want to be less live and kind of do it on their own time. TeamFlow is betting you actually want to be online with your coworkers all the time, just at a more passive and subtle way. And so TeamFlow is the extension of the virtual HQ trend we're seeing. It's a platform created by Florence Ravello, who was formerly a leader at Uber. And it is trying to make a productive, collaborative place that an employee opens in the morning, stays on all day, and can kind of walk and toggle over to your coworkers. I mean, I hate Slack. You know, Slack is, has reduced my productivity by like 100x. You don't answer Slack. How is it possibly reduced your productivity? <laughs> Shots fired. Every time I Slack you, a year goes by, and then you're like, do you still need me? <laughs> hey, I'm here now. I was on a call for three hours. Sorry, you know, Alex, you, that Slack should be a tweet, according to Danny. Yeah. And that tweet should be silent. So there you go. <laughs> I, I do have, you know, one of the biggest challenges with most productivity software is, is the cost of taking other people's time is very, very low. You slack someone, you don't know what they're busy, like you just, you're, you're kind of dumping this and it demands attention. So I'm curious, uh, Natasha, like when you look at TeamFlow, I mean, how are they trying to put, I guess, some friction into that? You know, you, you know the ability to send an email to 10,000 people and now everyone has like a five minute work thing to do. How are they keeping it so that it can stay productive while also being passive? So there's probably two things that come to mind first. One, they have breakout rooms, which other HQ platforms don't have yet in, in the same way. 
TeamFlow only lets certain people enter certain rooms. The scrappy startup might want to brand itself around anyone can talk to anyone at any time with the glass office. TeamFlow is trying to create a little bit more division between employees in that way. And then finally, TeamFlow isn't trying to get into the same business as competitors because it's not trying to be like gamified or necessarily fun to be in. The CEO was pretty aggressive about that. He was like, we, we might have a pool table one day, but for now we're focused on integrating Notion into your workspace. <laughs> so it's a different feel, I think. And if you're struggling to kind of picture this in your mind, one, go read Natasha's story about this. There's screenshots. So it, it's a bit like Pokemon. Like I said, top down look at a room with like chairs, but you're on the ceiling looking down into them and your little bubble moves around and you can kind of like get closer and further away. So there's like a, a game like environment but a not fun one. It's been corporatized. So it's an unfun social <laughs> game for workplace communication, which sounds like Slack, but with images. That's what's amazing because I am in my 30s and I would like to pretend I'm not infantilized anymore. <laughs> I don't know what to Danny, do. Um, <laughs> why do you hate innovation? Yeah, <laughs> you don't know. I will say, so one more fact and then we're going to move on, but they've had a lot of growth. So according to the company, since their beta launch, 30% growth in hours week over week, up to, I think, a total of 50,000 user testing hours on the experience. It, they raised $3.9 million and they have a thousand users on the wait list, which, uh, which sounds great. Sounds solid. So let's move on though. So obviously all these teamwork tools are great, but in order to use teamwork tools, you need to have amazing internet. And unfortunately for the vast, vast majority of Americans, no one has good internet. Or, or if you have good internet, you're super fortunate because your monopoly happens to be nice and give its largesse to, to you uh, for bandwidth. So um, an interesting startup out of Utah, and I, 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 Alex, they're called what? Silicon Slopes or Silicon Sands or? Uh, no, they're Silicon Slopes. Yeah, Slope. Silicon Slopes. So a company called WeLink is being built out using millimeter wave 5G. They just raised a $185 million Series A, which is a nice, solid nine-figure <laughs> haul for an early-stage two-year-old company. That was led by Digital Alpha Advisors, which is a VC hybrid firm connected to Cisco. The, the round was actually a combo. This is actually quite interesting. A combo of equity and a debt product that converts to rev share. So over time, as they take more money out of the line, it'll actually convert to rev share as they sort of launch their network. But what we link is it installs base stations on homes. It's targeted at suburban neighborhoods or what the, the CEO of the company called the donut ring around urban cores. And what it creates is a mesh network. So each home actually communicates to the base stations at other homes. You install these on your roof. They're about four by four inches. It's actually extremely small. You basically can't even see it. It's way smaller than a satellite dish. And then you basically get gigabit fiber. So they offer up to 980 megabits per second, up and down symmetrical. So if you want to upload and download, it works very, very well. Obviously, a really compelling space. And I think something that stood out about WeLink is one of their investors, Digital Alpha Advisors, is close with Cisco. And Cisco, if you want to see a startup that's doing well, it's a startup that Cisco is partnering with. It worked with Snowflake before Snowflake was cool. You know, it doesn't have a formal partnership yet, but I think it's great that they have a dialogue and I think it's a good flex on their end to be able to mention that along with this obviously absurd Series A for anyone who missed that. <laughs> the CEO, Luke Langford, and the CEO's name is Kevin Ross, but the CEO, Luke Langford, really emphasized that, you know, for a startup in the teleco space, you know, obviously Cisco, at least for American companies, there's one or two providers of most telecom equipment. One of those is Cisco. Having that partnership so early with, with two partners from Digital Alpha Advisors coming to the board basically gives them the ability to have like CEO level relationship as a two-year-old startup. They're only in Henderson, Nevada, which is a suburb of Las Vegas, and they're expanding to Tucson and Phoenix. 
this year. It's a real case where I was like, this makes total sense. You know, they're focused on the telco space. As the CEO put it, they actually get that atoms exist and not just bits. And so they're comfortable <laughs> with the idea that you have to install networking equipment in order to launch this sort of product. So I, I think it's uh, quite a compelling example. And this is another example of one of those companies that we talk about that I initially think is very dumb until I get a bit more into it. Because one, the, the physical units, as Danny said, are quite small. They're not super ugly. I can see even people who are aesthetically minded not really caring that they're on their house. And then also in the piece, Danny, you point out that you don't need to have a lot of market penetration to make this work. Like 5% of houses is enough to actually create a very stable network, which is much lower than I would have guessed. I was thinking 20%, which just felt like a really high barrier to get to. But 5% is one out of every 20 houses. The more the merrier. And, and look, one of the big things that CEO Kevin Ross emphasized was, you know, he started looking at this space in 05. And back then, these space stations cost like $50,000 and the only people interested were, was the Defense Department. And now they're like 200 bucks. I, I'm kind of making up a number, but there's, sure. you know, three digit price points as opposed to like serious five digit price points. And so it's just the accessibility of a lot of this technology. You're able to install in the house and get paid back. The, the price is $80 month to month if you're flexible, if you're not signing a contract. And so you can actually make that money back quite quickly, even though you're giving that base station away for free. But let's continue on talking about spend. If you raise $185 million, you're obviously going to spend a lot. But we have another startup here called Divi, which raised a boatload of money, I guess, to also manage spend. So, so Alex, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, so we're going to stick in Utah, which is a, a thing to keep in mind, because I feel like Utah used to be kind of like, we're an up and coming startup scene. Now I feel like Utah is just part of the mix, a bit like Boston is how it feels to me now, like established multi-generation startups and so forth. So something to keep in mind. Anyways, Divi is a company that I've covered for a long time. It's kind of with Podium in the current generation of Utah unicorns. $165 million is what they just put together. New valuation, $1.6 billion, up from around $700 million in their last round, according to PitchBook data. The new capital was raised from Hanako, Sconefeld, PayPal Ventures, Whale Rock, which I think I remember, but I kind of forget what it is, and some of their prior investors. Just for reference, they raised $200 million back in April of 19. So what do they do? As Danny alluded to, spend management. If you're a company, you have a lot of employees. There's many corporate cards. There's many things that you have on auto pay. People want to centralize and consolidate that and then have some software built around it to help them budget and kind of keep tabs on what's the outflows from their company. It's a hot space. Divi has raised money recently. Ramp has raised money recently. There's also Airbase and, uh, oh, uh, um, Brex fits into this Team as well. Pay. There's a couple Team Pay, thank you. That's what I can come up with. Anyways, Divi's doing really well. And here's why I wanted to talk about this funny round on equity. It's a neat round, but whatever. What matters is there's a product question that I'm very curious about that's going to happen inside this space. Two schools of thought and spin management. Divi's on the give it away for free, free software, here are some corporate cards, go forth, and they make money off interchange. This lowers sales friction dramatically, helps them land a lot of customers, and it's great for companies. It's free. On the other hand, a couple of players in this space do charge for their software, and they want to invest more money in the code they've built around the spend function to help you with budgeting, catching double payments, tell you where you're overpaying, that sort of thing. And I, I'm curious to see how long it takes for one of those two camps to win, because I don't think they'll both really win long term. And so I don't know which is going to be the better in-market resonant way to approach the business. But it's a question that I have that I'll be watching over the next year. And I presume given how fast all these companies are growing, they're growing at 100, 200% a year in terms of like revenue or ARR for the software focused ones. What happens in 2021? I have my eye on it. But Divi is certainly a cool company and need to see Utah show up twice on the show. I was so surprised when I saw that Divi was founded in 2018. That feels like a company that's been around much longer. Before we jump into the last funding round before the new funds, I just want to say that we've seen such quick product 
maturity in the fintech space. And just one example of that in this area has been how, how quickly the ability to issue cards to corporations to let them spend went from, oh, that's really cool to that's boring table stakes. What else are you doing? It just goes to show how fast all these teams are going. Well, talking about all this growth and, and key results, I mean, one of the most important things for most startups is setting their objectives and key results or OKRs, um, which has been a major market for a lot of software. Right? We've seen a ton of platforms in the OKR space. And then Alex, you just had another one today raise a huge round and is also growing super fast. Yeah. So the second half of 2019 into the start of 2020, a bunch of companies in the OKR software space raised money. Workboard, GTM Hub, I think Purdue was in there. And so there was just a lot of activity in a space that I didn't think was going to be very, very big. And so to me, I was a little bit surprised at the number of bets that were being made on companies that were targeting what felt like a relatively you know, modest software niche. But what we've learned, thanks to this new GTM Hub round, they put together a $30 million Series B, which is rather large for historical context, is that there's still a lot of growth to be found. They grew 4x in 2019, and they grew 3x in 2020. And let me tell you, if you grow 4x in one year, much harder to grow 3x the year after that, because you have a much larger revenue base to grow from. So I, I was very impressed with this. I talked to the Seth, who's the COO, and we just kind of riffed around the, the industry. And there just seems to be a lot of demand for a couple reasons. One, OKRs have gone from like this Silicon Valley rubric that Google you know, made famous and people in our little circles would talk about to being something accepted more broadly in the business community. And also he said, you know, look, a lot of companies that are big and GTM has long had an enterprise focus, they target bigger customers. A lot of big companies are working to reinvent themselves, digital transformation, whatever you want to call that kind of rejuvenation, agility, whatever. Big companies go slow. They want to go faster, essentially. And he's like, you know, a product that like OKRs fits well into that mix of trying to rebuild your company, how you approach the market. So GTM Hub has, has seen really good growth. I'm curious now if we're going to see Workboard and the other companies in the space that have raised a lot of money and made a lot of noise and shared their own growth numbers. Email me those, please do. So we can see how everyone did in, uh, in 2020. I would love to turn that into a post. But I think, I think we need to stop on funding rounds and turn to the font of dollars, aka venture capitalists raising themselves. And we have a few here, actually. It's been a really busy week. Uh, we're going to kick off with the best one, which is One Way Ventures. Yeah, One Way Ventures started off the new year by announcing its second fund at $57.5 million. They are a Boston-based firm that focuses on investing in immigrant founders. I think out of maybe 48 of their portfolio companies, only two don't have an immigrant co-founder. Popular investments with immigrant co-founders include Brex, ClassTag, Chipper, which Bezos recently backed. It's three years after their debut fund, so it's not necessarily like absurd news, but it's a lot bigger than they plan to raise. They went out trying to raise 30, they raised almost 60, and now they're planning to become more of a lead investor in seed rounds. I'm very impressed with that. And also going from 28 to essentially 60 is, is doubling the size of the fund, which, you know, Danny, as I think you know, really increases the amount of money you have just to run the firm itself. Absolutely. And they are adding a new exec as well, Natasha, is that correct? Yeah, so they're adding Nadia Asoyan. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correct, but she was a former executive at Robinhood and currently works at Trusted Health. She'll be a venture partner, I believe their first female venture partner. Excited about that. They've also added presence in Montreal and San Francisco since starting their debut fund. While they're based in Boston, they're trying to definitely widen their footprint, and that's because immigrants are badass everywhere. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the immigrant point stands up because as you know, we often kind of point out, so many Silicon Valley great companies were founded either by immigrants or the children of immigrants. It's, it's a theme in, in kind of like new business creation. 
Totally. I mean, and not so jokingly, they they added the Canada partner only because of the immigration environment of the U.S. Not only, but in light of. Yeah. And a lot of their LP commitments this time around only closed once Biden won. And so those are two kind of points of showing how it, it is not just the branding that makes them an immigrant focused fund. They're actually kind of is obviously impacting the way that they raise and grow. But let's scoot on over to Seattle Danny, you wrote about Madrona. <laughs> uh, yes, we, we picked up a, a couple of filings over the holiday. So uh, Seattle-based uh, Madrona is focused mostly on the Pacific Northwest, has been growing quite a bit over the last couple of years, hiring new folks. We found that they raised a total of about $500 million across, I, I, th- I want to say it was like six vehicles, getting a little absurd in terms of the LLC and, and LPs and GPs and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, but essentially, they raised an eighth fund of $345 million, about two and a half years after the last fundraise. Um, that's slightly up from their other early stage funds. So the last two or three have been around 300 million. So just a, a, a you know a little bit more than 10 percent more than their last fund. The other piece that's interesting is that they raised 161 million for what they call their accelerator fund, which is a badly named term for their growth fund. So they have this thesis. They mostly do seed, particularly from the earliest stages, according to the firm. But then they also do first checks or, or new checks into new companies that don't have a relationship with at the B and C stages out of their accelerator fund. They had raised, I believe, $100 million, I'm doing this from memory, $100 million last year for this fund, and now it's $161 million for Accelerator Fund 2. So a total of $500 million. They remain, I believe, the largest venture capital in the Pacific Northwest. I don't think there's any other exceptions to that. So clearly doing very well on their eighth fund. And then uh, Natasha, who picked up on the Madrona filings, you also ran into a couple more filings from USV and Learn Capital. Yeah, on New Year's Eve, we got two little notes from USV closed two funds. Speaking of badly named funds, they closed something <laughs> called USV Bundled. They won't clarify what it's about, but it's uh, 22.4 million. Um, I'm only a little salty, but their other fund is USV Climate 2021, and it's 151 million. Um, and then finally, Learn Capital and EdTech focused funds. One of the first closed 132 million for a new fund total goal is 250 i'm sure they'll hit it i think one of the things if you actually do the filings and read through the filings what you'll find with a lot of funds is they are breaking up what were beautiful clean gp entities into multiple constituent parts so like sequoia is known for doing this for a long time they have a manager's fund so their actual gps have their own fund and they kind of co-invest so when you get a, a sequoia investment you actually get from two funds at the same time so when we look at the ipo filings we actually see like all the different entities, you know, related to Sequoia or Madrona. Madrona, I think, had three per each of its funds. It has a manager's fund of friends and family for its entrepreneurs fund, if you're if I'm reading the nomenclature correct, and then the actual like LP driven fund. And so when I hear something like USV bundled, I have a feeling that's not even a thesis fund. It might actually just be like a, an entrepreneur's fund or a manager's fund or something like that. But it is interesting to see how much these these firms are changing the the operational uh, structures of, of their their entities. And making our lives worse. I was going like, to say, I mean, not annoying at all. Well, I, I think, what, what would you, I, was it Airbnb or one of these? And I was like, I had no idea that like Sequoia had invested through like 30 different vehicles. <laughs> well, like I know this is, I know it's a bad trend because I got emails about Danny's Madrona story. And I was like, what's this? And he was like, there were six funds. And I went, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's hard exactly. to get right because it's so opaque. It's so hard to parse into like USV climate. Great. That I can understand. Union Square Ventures, climate focus. 10 points to Fred Wilson for naming something by what it does. Everyone else, demerits. No demerits here, but we do have a couple of major acquisitions that happened this week. In fact, it was a bonanza. I mean, it's the end of the year. And and I think we've talked about this in an earlier equity episode. You know, as soon as the presidential election got uh, finalized, 
we're getting close to the end of the tax year and, and a lot of stuff around stimulus is getting locked in. A lot of companies are figuring out their M&A and locking in deals before the end of the year. That clearly happened. We were on break for three weeks. I think we actually, in the original script here, had 14 acquisitions. We're actually pushing those to some of those to an extra episode. But we want to talk about a few right now. The first one of which Alex is going to cover, Hoppin, uh, just had a huge acquisition. This is like a company that barely exists, and it already is making nine-figure acquisitions. So Alex, what is going on? Well, it, 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 it didn't used to really exist. Now it very much does. It has over 300 employees. And the CEO, Johnny, told me yesterday that it's going to have 800 by the end of this year. So wow. it, it's gone from like him making a thing to- It's hopping over there. Arrow. Okay, so here's what's going on. Hoppin has bought live streaming startup StreamYard for $250 million, one quarter of a billion dollars in a mix of cash and stock. Now, StreamYard itself was a bootstrap company. And I talked to one of the co-founders, uh, Gage, yesterday during my chat with Hoppin, a very interesting phone call about why he made the decision to sell, what Hoppin wants. And here's the short gist. StreamYard went from zero to 30 million ARR without external funding. In fact, Gage told me he ran the company with his co-founder until they were at 10 million ARR, which I thought was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my entire life because some startups have like 100 employees by then. Um, anyways, what matters is people wanted to give him money, wanted to buy his company. He wasn't really interested, but the Hoppin deal made sense to him for a couple of reasons. One was an increased resource base. Two, they had a lot of customers in common. And also, you know, if I was going to trade my startup stock for the stock of another company, given Hoppin's rapid growth, probably not a terrible company to trade my bucks for for their bucks. Hoppin, keep in mind, went from zero to 20 million ARR in nine months. When that, and they announced that back when they announced a nine-figure round late last year. So what we're seeing here is a combined entity that Johnny, the CEO of Hoppin, told me will have about 65 million in, in ARR. So Hoppin, Danny, you're right, was nothing. And now it's, it's about a year away from an IPO scale. <laughs> Maybe one of the fastest companies or fastest growth stories I've ever seen. It raised two rounds last year. The StreamYard deal, I think it's cool. It's Frankly, brilliant. That's yeah, kind of... I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And then I guess Hoppin also bought another company. Yeah, that's in the notes. They bought uh, Topi. <laughs> Topi. No one cares about Topi. So basically, Topi is a networking app. And so for anyone who's used Hoppin, there is like this obvious area where you can jump in, get connected with a random. And I think like, obviously, I'm a little bit more interested in talking about StreamYard. So I'm going to do that. StreamYard is cool because <laughs> the creator economy aspect. So StreamYard only has about like 15 to 20%, according to its co-founder of its customers, use its service for events-related activities. The rest is from the creator economy and small businesses. It has really cool integration so you can live stream to social media, edit your via Instagram stories. I'm probably butchering all the awesome capabilities, but I think it's smart of Hopin to differentiate because I don't know about you guys, any remote work focused founder in the past four or five months I've talked to has mentioned Hopin as part of its pitch. And I think like it is, I think the startup of 2020 will probably be a lot of inspiration for startups in 2021 needs to differentiate because people are definitely trying to ride its energy. Yeah. Also keep in mind, they're not buying StreamYard to shatter its brand and, and subsume the product into the Hopin platform and dissolve the company. They're going to keep it as a distinct brand because 80% of its customers are different, but they are going to make uh, much stronger integrations of StreamYard into Hopin itself. It'll become the default option, though Hopin will remain agnostic for streaming providers, if you want to host your event on something else, if you're like a fancy studio and you have your own stuff, that's fine. Okay, look, we're going to go into a couple of quick things about podcast acquisitions. We have a couple of minutes left in the show. We're going to blast through these. Twitter bought social podcasting app Breaker, which uh, I checked the stats. 1.34% of equity downloads historically have come through Breaker. 
So shout out to all the breaker <laughs> listeners out there. Your app is dead. Please use something else. Please don't go away. Uh, Twitter no, no, is going to no, no, kill no. Twitter, the app. Twitter has a, no, no. Twitter has a great reputation for maintaining the products that it buys over the entire course of its human existence. R.I.P. Vine. Yeah. And on January 15th, Breaker will die because that's when Twitter <laughs> said they're going to kill it. No, but Danny, you're right. I mean, Twitter has, no, they have a terrible reputation about that. No, but they have a terrible reputation. That, that was sarcasm. So, so Breakers 2 apparently is joining Twitter to help, quote, improve the health of the public conversation, which one has to say, given the public conversation in the last uh, 24 hours, the Breaker team seems like they got a, the short end of the stick getting a lot of work <laughs> to do for their acquisition going into to essentially, like, what it has to be one of the hardest jobs on the planet. And then I guess they're also going to be part of Twitter's new audio-based networking project, Twitter Spaces, which I actually don't know anything about. Yeah, Natasha, you're the designated cool person on the show. Is Twitter Spaces <laughs> kind of like Clubhouse? It, it's competing with Clubhouse. I did submit a form to get to test the beta, so I will try and let you guys know if they accept me. If Twitter, if you're listening, please accept me. Twitter obviously is is entering 2021 with a splash. I think they're tired of all the critique, but they've now acquired three companies for Twitter spaces. They've acquired Breaker, Squad, a screen sharing social app, oh, yeah. and Ueno, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. And uh, so Twitter's studio, definitely yeah. putting its foot in the ground, sees a lot of opportunity in audio-based chatting. That's good. I am excited for that. I will not be snarky about it unless they don't allow me into the beta, and then I will be snarky about it. I was just going to say, you know, guys, Twitter, I've written over like 200,000 tweets in my life. That's a gift. So please convert that into get Natasha into the beta bucks. Thank you. <laughs> but talking about podcasts and audio, obviously, um, Amazon also made a huge acquisition right before the end of the year. Amazon acquired Wondery, which is another podcast, I guess, studio, I guess you would call this, or podcast sure. network, for what was disclosed, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, at $300 million dollars. This has been podcast acquisition season. I mean, what's left to buy in the podcast space? And people keep telling me, oh, there's a lot to buy. But that was like every time there's another one of these go, and I don't think there's anything left. And so Wondery will become part of Amazon Music. You can uh, get, get access to it if you have a Prime account, which presumably you do. And the startup was founded uh, in 2016 by Hernan uh, Lopez, a former Fox exec. And the, the journal had reported earlier on that it was going to be about a $300 million deal. So right in that podcast exit sweet spot. I want to know like kind of what's driving it other than like people piggybacking off each other. Um, Reggie James the other day on Twitter, the CEO of Eternal was basically like, why is everyone treating audio like it's a new platform? And I think it's hilarious that like we're seeing this huge rush of people. I mean, I'm curious what you guys are seeing. Do you think it's more that they're buying the technology, the content meeting in the middle? I don't know what to make of the rush. I think with the, the lockdowns, you know, there was this huge fear around podcasts in, in March, April, right? The idea was that podcasts were habit-driven, you know, people were doing it on their commutes. Now they're not commuting, they're not going to listen to podcasts. I think the opposite happened, you know, as more and more people bought home devices, uh, whether it's HomePods or Alexas or whatever the Google product is, you know, people have had access to podcasts. And my guess is the numbers look very, very compelling. People want differentiation. And so we saw Spotify buy Gimlet, SiriusXM, bought Stitcher, the New York Times bought Serial a while back. Uh, now Amazon is buying Wondery. Everyone everywhere is trying to get exclusive content so they have unique offerings for their customers and, and to compete. And, and the reality is, is that Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and others all believe they're competing for the same customer. In many ways, they are. Like if you have one of these accounts, why would you need something else? That's what the exclusives are, are meant to do. And, and from my perspective, you know, the podcast, most of them have been content driven. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm with Hunter Walk, who I believe tweeted this out. These are terrible exits. I gotta be honest, like, uh, you know, if podcasts were the next major social medium, 
$300 million exits is, is not a venture scale return for most folks. You know, you're not making that much money in this space. So I, I actually don't think it's a good sign long-term for the health of VCs investing in the audio space like this. So we, we are very, very short on time and we're going to just blast these last two things in, in record time. Natasha, can you give us a thumbnail about why the P&G Billy News matters for DTC startups? Yeah, a while ago, P&G was going to acquire Billy, which is a razor startup focused on selling to women. They were under investigation for the FTC due to antitrust that has eventually rolled it over into P&G, kind of ending the deal. And so I will quote Andrea Hernandez, who knows far more than me. She writes Snacks Shot, which is a great newsletter. She basically said that D2C companies need deals like this in order to get the distribution scale they need. You know, this is the preferred route going the, as she describes, the big daddy corp route and getting whisked away. It's not that it's going to be antitrust, but it's going to be that you get a success story. And it's the only way that you can actually reach the scale as a D2C brand. And so I think what this means for D2C companies is they're now seeing a lot of their options dry up, which I think that some people are viewing as like very unfair. It, it questions if D2C can be a venture-backable category. That means they'll, they'll never get to reach scale. That's always been a question given their gross margins and very expensive customer acquisition models. But just to close off, and don't forget, we do have a special gaming-ish focused equity extra dose leftovers thing coming Saturday. But briefly before we go, guys, IPO season is still happening. A firm is targeting up to $38 per share in its IPO. Could be worth between $9 and $12 billion, depending on how you counted shares. And then Poshmark, the e-commerce marketplace for secondhand fashion goods, effectively, is targeting $35 to $39 per share at a valuation of up to 5x its last private price. So a lot going on there. We are way over time. We love you all. Long live democracy. Bye. Bye.